precious time that we get to spend with you and with each other, Lord. Um, we just couldn't be more grateful to be a part of this family, Lord, of your family, Lord. And I just pray that as we sit together, Lord, um, Bibles in hand, Lord, um, we just pray that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, Lord, and that we would just fall so much deeper in love with you um, as each moment goes by that we hear your voice. Lord, I just pray that you give me the words to speak and that um, you would be with us tonight as you promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. That clap will probably turn out really loud in the thing. Um, okay, today we're going to look at one of the aspects of the Bible that makes me love it the most. The fact that it's super honest, it is completely truthful. It shows man in his entirety, the good, the bad, the very, very ugly. And it shows God in his entirety, in his sovereignty, in his justice, in his, the peace that he gives, the joy that he gives, in his grace, in his mercy. It shows that whole spectrum. But I love that when I read the Bible and I look at a character in the Bible... I'm not instantly faced with this impossible standard that I can never meet. And we're going to look at a few characters um, tonight together. And that's the reason that I love it. It's because when I read about someone, it doesn't tell me, okay, this person is perfect and you're supposed to be like this person. And I'm like, well, I can never be like that. When the Bible mentions a character, when they mention their life, they mention everything about their life, the good and the bad. And it gives you an even balance. And you realize as you read it, wow, this person is human too. And he's made mistakes too. She's made mistakes too. And so have I. And we can relate to that. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. When something is bad or awful or just plain evil, it says it. In all of its badness, it just says it. And I love that. There is no fakeness about this book. It is all of humanity raw. And it is all of God raw as well. And that's the beautiful, beautiful thing about it. So, let's get into some characters. Wow, that projector is clean. I'm glad we bought that thing. Alright, Acts. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Acts. Don't turn to it yet, John. Let them have a chance. Look it up, son. Turn to Acts. If you've got your Bible, your physical one. Huh? You don't have your Bible? If you don't have your Bible, it's okay. Look with John. Um, if you do, Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 21. We got it? This is good. Acts 13, verse 21. Got it? Acts 13, verse 21. Alright. Then the people asked... For a king, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. Saul was the first king that Israel ever had, okay? That God's people ever had. But after removing Saul, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. I want you to concentrate, okay? God just said about this dude, David. This guy is a man after my own heart. That is some seriously high praise. Okay? This guy thinks the way that I think. Wants the things that I want. His heart is in the right place. Okay? That's David. 
Now David, you know, he wrote the Psalms. He was the king of Israel for a long time. He did all of this awesome stuff. He, in worshiping God, he was so passionate and zealous and genuine. He cared about the things of God. He wanted to be as close to God as he possibly could throughout his life. A man after God's own heart. God himself said it. But David also screwed up big time. So, so, so big time. Now I get this one side of David where he's this awesome, passionate man of God who is just kicking goals for God. And then I get the other side where I just see his human flesh just fail so, so miserably. And we're going to read that now, okay? We're going to read about this one incident that you guys all know about. And I just want to show you, like I said, the good is really good. The bad is really, really bad. So now we're going to turn to 2 Samuel, verse 11, uh, chapter 11. 2 Samuel. Have a look in your Bibles. 2 Samuel, Old Testament. That's it. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. You'll get used to it. You'll get faster. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. From verse 1. Who's got it? Hands up. Awesome. Respect. Hold on. John's got it. Check this out. In the spring, pay close attention, alright? This is, again, the same David, the guy who God said, this man's after my own heart. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. There's red flag number one. What do the kings always do in the springtime? They go off to war. What was David doing? Stayed home, sent the army on his behalf instead. Already a bit of a red flag. One evening, verse 2, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to go get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. What's happened here? The whole army's out at war, including this Uriah the Hittite guy, who we're going to read a little bit more about in a second, right? And his wife is home. His wife is taking a bath. David isn't supposed to see that, but he's in the wrong place at the wrong time because he chose to be. That's fine. Because he chose to be. Right? And so he ends up seeing something that he shouldn't have, and it gets him thinking in the wrong way and about the wrong thing. And eventually his lust overtakes him, and he does something, he makes a horrible, horrible decision. Call this woman over, and he sleeps with her, and he gets her pregnant. And suddenly, he's got this huge problem. She sends him a message saying, hey, I'm pregnant. This is very distracting. <laughs> hey, I'm pregnant. Immediately, he panics. What does he do? He sends a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and he says... Send me this Uriah the Hittite guy. Send him back. I want to talk to him. So what does he say to him? 
verse 17. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. In other words, he just made small talk with him. Then David said to Uriah, subtly, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go to his house. So David's expecting what here? He calls him back. He gives him a gift. He says, you know what? You've been doing well. Go to your house. Rest up. Obviously, he's been at war for a long time. He'll want to see his wife. And then what's going to happen when he sees his wife? And then she's pregnant. But then she won't know that it was David's. What happens instead, this man is so faithful to the king that he sleeps on the steps of the palace. He refuses to go home while his brothers are at war. The character of this guy is just astoundingly awesome. Anyway, so what does David do next? Okay, that didn't work. David was told Uriah did not go home, verse 10. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Character. That's character right there. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So convincing didn't work. David tries something else, even more underhanded. Verse 13. At David's invitation, he ate and drank and drank with him. So he invited him to dinner. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants and did not go home. This guy, man. I love this guy. Anyway. In the morning, David does the most despicable thing of all. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Okay, so he wrote a letter, he closed it, put it in the envelope, sealed it, and said, take this to Joab. Uriah doesn't know what's in it. Here's what's in the letter. In it he wrote, put Uriah, verse 15, put Uriah in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. When the men of the city... So, verse 16. So, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account of the battle. This is like cold-blooded murder. David sends this guy's death warrant by his own hand. How intense is that? He's like, okay, I'm writing. As soon as you hand this letter to Joab, you're a dead man and you have no idea. How could the man who wrote all the Psalms, who, was, who worshipped God just by jumping around and dancing, was so happy that the ark had come back to Israel, that God's presence was back to Israel, that he pretty much danced naked in the street. That's how happy he was. How can a man who is that passionate about God, who loves God that much, 
fall this far. Man, this isn't like a little, this isn't gossiping behind someone's back or a white lie or whatever rubbish we can make it out to be. This is bad, man. This is messed up. He's screwed up. Like in every possible way. And look at his reaction. The messengers, uh, where are we? Oh, in verse 20. No, verse 19. Thank you, John. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Don't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? So obviously they've been in situations like this before. Joab might have made a bad decision before. It's like we took the army too close to the wall. Don't do that again. That was a silly mistake. So he's going to hear that that obviously happened again and he's going to be angry. So to calm him down, Joab says to the messenger, say this to David. Um, uh, why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him at the bottom of verse 21, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. That'll calm him right down because that's what he wanted. Verse 11, 23, the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So clearly maybe David was actually getting angry. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. In other words, Hey man, stuff happens in war. This, you know... It's okay, don't let it upset you too much. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. I can hear relief in his voice. Not concern or sadness that his men had died. Not the fact that that was bad military strategy. I can hear relief in his voice that a man is dead. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the bad. This is bad. Yet it's the same man who God pointed at and said, This is a man after my own heart. Were these actions after his own heart? No, of course not. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the repentance that he had after this. He was talking about all the... We'll get into that in a second. But this was not the part that's after God's own heart. This was the human flesh. This was the evil nature in you and me taking full flight in David's life. This is messed up. I want to read you a little bit more about this Uriah the Hittite guy. 2 Samuel, verse uh, 23, chapter 23, I keep saying that. 2 Samuel 23, just open that up. 2 Samuel chapter 23, so you're already in 2 Samuel, verse 23. From verse 8. Okay, check this out. It talks about this group of guys, basically David's personal bodyguard, like the best warriors in the army, okay? And it just says a little snippet about like the achievements of like these 30 guys, okay? Just a heads up, these guys make Hercules look like a cute little puppy, alright? Just listen. Verse 8, 20, verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty warriors, Josheb, Bash, Hebeth, attack him or not, alright? Hadzak was chief of the three. So these are like the three craziest guys, alright? 
Uh, where are we? He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. In one battle, on one day, this guy single-handedly killed 800 men on the battlefield. One guy. Okay? One guy. The next one, verse 13 to 17. During the harvest time, if you've got your Bibles open, read in your Bible. John, scroll down a little bit. During the harvest time, three of the thirty chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adjulam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem, okay? So the country was being attacked. The Philistine army, the enemy army, was right next to David's hometown, and, it, like, they were hiding away, basically, and they made camp on the other side of town, okay? Now, at that time, uh, verse 25, 15, verse 15, David longed for water, he was thirsty, and he said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of the water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now remember, this is where the opposite army is in camp. So what this, look at this. So three of the mighty warriors broke through the Philistines' lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. He said, far be it from me to do this. These guys risked their lives to do that as if I'm going to drink it. These three guys single-handedly broke through enemy lines, got this guy a cup of water, and brought it back. Like, that's insane. There's another one where a dude just goes into a snowy pit and fights a lion and kills him, like with his bare hands. These guys are just nuts, alright? The last name, and they just mentioned name by name, the last name you see on this list, you don't hear about his achievements, but if you scroll down to the very bottom of the chapter, you see this. And Uriah the Hittite. He was one of the 30. He was one of these incredibly courage, like courageous to a stupid level, almost. Dudes in David's army, one of the most loyal men to him. And we saw that in how he reacted when he came home from war. He slept on the doorstep of the palace and refused to go home to his wife. Wow. Wow at this guy's character. Normally, we want to be like David. In this instance, I want to be exactly like Uriah. The contrast in character. The Bible shows the good and it shows the very, very bad in each of us. Is it possible for a person to be, to have such a good relationship with God one moment and to be going strong and then to fall into a trap and screw up really, really, really badly? The answer is a resounding yes. If we're not close to God at all times, your sinful nature is waiting for you just like that. To take you from being like, wow, the very best example of worship probably in the Bible, to what, having done one of the most heinous things I can think of in the Bible. Just, and you can see it's a spiral. It started with him being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Then he saw Bathsheba. Then he made a mistake. Then he tried to fix that mistake. And as he did it, he dug a hole deeper and deeper and deeper until I imagine he woke up one day and said, Who am I? What have I done? Who have I become that I get a man drunk or that I do this or that I send his death warrant by his own hand? This is messed up. 
But let's move. We'll come back to David in a second. Let's move to the New Testament now for a second. Let's go to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 26. Turn to it. Matthew 26. Verse 31. Alright. Let me set the scene for you here, okay? This is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the mob came to take Jesus, to arrest Jesus, to be crucified, okay? And he's saying a few final words... To his disciples, okay? Verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night, pay attention guys, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. But Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. John, can you scroll down a little bit? And all the other disciples said the same. Peter's on fire here. Like this is literally a few, maybe minutes, maybe a couple of hours before Jesus gets arrested. Like very, very close timeline here. This guy's like... I'll never deny you. I'll die with you or for you if need be. I'm in it. I'm 100% committed. Go to verse 66, please, John. Let's read what happened when Jesus actually did get arrested. A few minutes or hours after that was said. Is that verse? Did I say 66? Uh, okay, keep going a little bit. Oh, verse 71. Okay. Then he went out on a yeah, thank you, John. 69. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. Okay? Here's what he said being put to the test. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. There's number one. I don't know what you're talking about. Can you imagine being with Jesus like an hour before? Saying, I'm willing to die for you right now. And an hour later, you're saying with all conviction, I don't know what you're talking about. What a disparity in like mental shift. Wow, like what happened in that time? Verse 71, then he went out, so he moved. It's like, okay, I'm uncomfortable here. I'm going to move. These people are onto me, bro. Verse 71, then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. He reinforced it with an oath, with like a promise. I don't know the man. There's number two. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore at them. This is a man who's been with Jesus for over three years. Learning from him, looking at how he deals with people, learning his humility, his love, the way that he speaks. 
Suddenly, it's as if none of that has ever happened. He denies Jesus, he says, I don't know him, and he starts swearing at the people. This is the same Peter who a few weeks later stood in front of 3,000 and brought them to Christ. The same man. I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed in verse 75. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. See, King David, in a moment of intense weakness, in the eyes of God, the collective character and heart and direction of this man. I actually read something this morning. It said that David was a man after God's own heart. David did not have God's heart. He was striving after it. That was his direction. That was his aim. As it should be for all of us. But he also had the human side, the human weakness, the human flesh. And he felt as any of us can. And he made big, big mistakes. But God, in His just unbelievable mercy, and here's where we see God's reaction to these circumstances. God takes this man who was screwed up so badly and punishes him. The rest of his life, David's family life was horrible after that. That was his punishment. But he didn't kill him. He spared his life, which is more than David deserved. Much more than he deserved at that point. He saved his life. Furthermore, he still brought Jesus from his line. And if you look at the people that Jesus came from, his lineage, his history, they've all screwed up so bad at one point or another. And you have Moses, and you have Abraham, and you have Samson, and you have every other character in the Bible who has made a huge mistake at one point or another. As have I, as have you. It isn't, that's why I love the Word of God. It isn't this black and white of impossible standards of people. No, it's talking to me about real human beings who've screwed up, who've had close relationships with God, who have been walking with Him, and who fell into temptation, and who screwed up, and who God, in His infinite wisdom, mercy, and grace, stooped down to pick up. With Peter, there's this, what's the song that we were singing last week or the week before that? Um, indescribable. The last verse says, You see the depths of my heart, and you love me the same. Have you ever actually contemplated what that means? Jesus is standing there in the garden knowing that they're about to arrest Him, that He's about to die one of the most gruesome deaths that any human being has ever died. And He says to Peter, Hey, it's okay. You're going to deny me three times, but it's okay. I'm going to meet you. Actually, this is the part we didn't read. It said, I'm going to meet you when I've risen again on the Sea of Galilee and we'll go from there. So in other words, it's like, okay, in between now and then, you're going to screw up really badly. But that's okay. I'm, that's not the end of the line for you. I'm going to meet you again after I've been on the other side, on the beach of Galilee. 
Peter doesn't register this at all. He just continues with this mad rant of like, yeah, Jesus, I'm all for you. And screws up. But wow at the heart of God. The real heart of God. The one that doesn't mess up. The one that always has these open arms for each of us when we come back. And David did come back, by the way. And he ruled and he did much more good in the sight of the Lord as his life continued. He also screwed up more times. But he also did a lot of good. And his direction, his focus, where he wanted to be, even if he didn't always manage to get there, was the heart of God. And that's what we should be striving to be. If we can open... Actually, we don't need to open it. Romans 3.23 says this, very famous verse, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's another verse in Psalm 146, verse 3, that says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor put your trust in men, but trust in the Lord. Don't look up to people who are human, even if they're princes. Your parents have failed. Your bosses or co-workers who you admire have failed. Your youth leaders have most definitely failed. There's only one, one person in the history of humanity who hasn't failed. His name was Jesus. And that's the point of this book. To highlight the blackness of human hearts. Contrasted with the absolute purity and sinless perfection of who Jesus was. Every example before and even after Jesus, they're still human and they fail. But the one who never failed was Jesus. That's why we all need Jesus. Because we've all failed. We've all messed up in one way or another, big or small. We've all strayed from God in one point or another, but He's always brought us back. When you realize the thing that He said to the woman who who was a prostitute who was washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. He said to a man named Simon, he said, Simon, she loves much because she was forgiven much. When you understand how messed up and sinful and black your human heart is before God without Jesus, the love of God becomes so... So much more precious to you. Because you know. You know how undeserving you are of it. And how gracious and amazing and loving and wonderful God is. For extending it to you so freely. Again and again and again and again in Jesus. The Bible is a mirror. We're not given these examples so we can go, yeah, it's okay for me to screw up. It is absolutely not. We're given these examples so we don't fall into the same temptations. We don't fall into the same traps. We have our eyes open to them and we look out for them. And we recognize that the only one who can give the strength to avoid them is God Himself. This book is a mirror. And that's why I love it. And it is a mirror that doesn't cover up anything. The good or the very, very worst in us. And as you read it, your own heart will be reflected so clearly in it. And you'll know as you read it, this is me. 
and I need to come back to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you so much for your amazing grace, Lord. We thank you that you can look at a man like David, Lord, and before knowing that he's going to make these mistakes, and Peter, Lord, and so many others, and us, and you look, Lord, and in Jesus you say, there is a man after my own heart, Lord. But now you say, there is my son, not my servant, not just my friend, not someone I know or someone I created, but my child. Lord, how humbled we are by this. How thankful we are for this, Lord. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness to each of us, Lord. And thank you for your word that is so truthful and so honest and so clear. You are the only example we are to learn from and to look to, Lord, and to follow. I just pray that you would make each of us, Lord, men who are truly after your own heart, Lord, who are guided by your Holy Spirit and who act in a way that always pleases you, Lord. Keep us in your peace and in your strength and in your joy as we um, continue to walk with you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well done to all of you who brought your Bibles. Bring them next week, or we'll use the screen less, and we'll use the Bibles more as you learn to flip to them quicker. Awesome? Okay, now we actually have mental groups. Um, stop this now we have mental groups, and mental groups have changed ever